experience it. I tend to use the word sarcastically more than anything else, like, well, that was a thrill. But I can't remember the time I actually used it in a sentence and said, that was thrilling. I mean, it's just not something that comes up in conversation a lot. But So the word gets overused in some senses, uh, and, and, and that's like the word awesome. I mean, if you hear people talk about awesome, when, a technical definition of the word awesome is awe-inspiring. And when you hear young people talk about an awesome pair of shoes or an awesome outfit, and this is what I'd overhear my daughter talking with her friends about, I think that's a long way from the original intent of the word, which was to inspire awe. And so if we're not careful, when we start talking about the thrill of hope, it sounds like so much chatter, like something you would say, oh, that's thrilling. I hope that would work out that way. And that's really not at all what we're talking about. There's a movie genre that is called the thriller. There is a music and video classic by the late Michael Jackson called the thriller. And these all imply and seem to contain within them the sense that we're overwhelmed with energy and enthusiasm. We are frightened or we are somehow or another moved emotionally. We are thrilled C.S. Lewis, who incidentally this past week as people celebrated or remembered more than celebrated the, the life of John F. Kennedy and remembered his assassination 50 years ago, it, it falls to many to forget that it was also the same day that C.S. Lewis passed away. C.S. Lewis said this about hope. Hope is one of the theological virtues This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. When we think about the hope of our eternal life, when we think about the hope that is our future, oftentimes what we have to be able to do is is recognize that there is something certain that is going to happen. It is designed to give us a sense of excitement, energy. It is designed to help us come to a place where we can be at rest about our future. And when we think about Advent, it is certainly the case that we're, we're looking at and thinking about what the advent of the Messiah's arrival in Israel meant to the people of Israel and why it inspired such an ongoing hope. The promise of the Messiah, the promise of Jesus foretold in the prophet Isaiah chapter 61 that was read during our Advent readings today. The Israelites had banked on this promise from the prophet for seven centuries Interestingly enough, these stories as contained in Matthew are told from the perspective of, of Jesus' dad, Joseph. Uh, if you want to see the birth narratives and the baby narratives of Jesus from Mary's perspective, you'd have to look to the book of Luke. And these are intentional efforts to communicate different, different encounters with the hope of the coming of the Messiah. This is the way the New Testament is written. The book of Matthew in many ways is written uh, to address and to speak the gospel into a largely Jewish world. Whereas the, the gospel of Luke is 
filled with all sorts of references and side uh, topics that would give us some indication that the Gospel of Luke was written to communicate the truth of who Jesus was to a largely Gentile audience. And so in these cases, the experience of the Father in in a patriarchal society, this would be really important. More important from our vantage point is that each of these two individuals, both Joseph and Mary, if you'll read in Luke, are experiencing Jesus, and Jesus is really wreaking havoc in their worlds, that the Holy Spirit, by design, is coming in, and he is orchestrating something to take place in their lives, and what we see in both of their stories is how, for all of us, Jesus wants to take us into a place of peace and help us to rest about where our lives are headed. The essence of the infancy narratives, as they're called by biblical scholars, is to show an individual struggle or a problem and then the prophetic answer to each of those dilemmas. And you can see this in Matthew 1. As each Old Testament prophecy is quoted, it is addressing a specific panic moment for any number of people that are mentioned in the narrative. And while all of these point us to Jesus as the hope of the world for salvation, I want to encourage you first today that they also offer us daily hope. Two thoughts for you this morning, as is my want. Uh, I tend to do things in twos. The the first uh, point I'd like to share with you from our text, the first place of encouragement I'd like to give to you today, is that Jesus offers hope for your situation. Now, I'm not certain what your situation is, but imagine if you were in Joseph's shoes from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, before they came together, in other words, before Joseph and Mary were married, and not to put too fine of or, or, or too uh, straightforward a point on it, but before they'd had sexual relations, she was discovered to have been with child through the Holy Spirit. Now this, you have to understand, while our culture doesn't think much of it when people have children without being married in this particular religious subculture of Palestine, This was scandalous stuff. Carolyn and I have begun to watch some uh, movie series on Netflix that focus a lot of attention on the the history of England and particularly around uh, the time of the Protestant Reformation. And it's it's stunning to me how uh, prevalent in their world uh, sexual immorality, uh, the whole notion of uh, having children with multiple people, the, the kings who professed to be Christians were serially unfaithful to their spouses, and, and yet they claimed to be like Christian leaders. And I, and I guess I put that forth uh, for anybody that would hear my voice to say, however bad you think our culture is right now, before you start panicking, worrying, you have to recognize that it's been a lot worse in a lot of different times in history. Uh, Jesus still managed to work in people's lives and give people uh, encouragement. And, and you, know, you need not fear that the end of the world is coming in spite of what others might say to you. That said, in Joseph's world, this idea of becoming pregnant before you were getting married was embarrassing. It was embarrassing to Mary. It was embarrassing to Joseph. But since this is written from Joseph's perspective, let's, let's imagine, if you will, how excited he was about the moment where he was about to get married. He was engaged, right? And so he's, they're planning the wedding. They're probably having family celebrations. And then she comes to him and says, I'm pregnant. Now, 
neither of them could have, if you'll pardon the pun, conceived of the notion of a virgin birth by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when she came to him and explained that she was pregnant but she'd never had sex with anybody, he presumed, and as, he, as any rational human being would have, that she was not telling him the truth. And she presumed that she had had an affair with another guy, and this is before they were even married. And I have to tell you, this would be devastating to your manhood. This would be like an amazing blow to say, you're not worth waiting for. I'm going to go ahead and be with another man. So this blows up his whole world. And then you think about, you know, the struggle that Joseph would have to go through in terms of uh, having to... uh, make this not appear like it was his child and yet want nothing to hurt her. And so he walks through and he's come up with this amazing plan as how he's going to fix this. He's going to quietly divorce her. And this, in his mind, seems to be the most reasonable path to fix the, the situation that he's found himself in. Joseph was in a tough spot. He had a solution figured out that he thought would solve his problems. But the complicated nature of his situation was part of a larger plan that God had. And God would have this moment with Joseph where he would tell him, don't be afraid. I'll go back to the text. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He addresses, I think this is so kind of the Lord to not think less of Joseph. He says, don't be afraid. So imagine what Joseph would have been afraid of. He would have been afraid of what others would have thought about him. He would have been afraid of the, the storm, the crud storm he was about to walk into. I mean, there would be quite a bit to be anxious about. And the angel of the Lord says, don't be afraid. And one of the ways he puts Joseph to rest is the hope he offers for this situation. It is something that you and I are called into as well in our lives, regardless of how difficult the circumstances of your life might be right now. Joseph needed to trust the Lord that the dicey situation he was in was designed to bring about the glory of God and that obedience to God would be the means by which he would experience blessing from God. So you and I, this is a daily experience if you call yourself a Christ follower. So many times life situations and difficulties throw us for a loop. We don't know why God is taking his time to bring about something in our life that we've been waiting on. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it is a spouse. Maybe it is the changing of your spouse. (laughs) Maybe your spouse is really difficult in some way, as my wife's spouse is really, really challenging. I want you to know. You know, perhaps you're discouraged, and you may even said something along the lines of, I'm losing hope. This quiet confidence that you have that the situation is working itself out, that God is superintending the process and you can trust him that at the end of this, because he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28, because he has promised to providentially organize your life, he is saying to you and I, 
Your life is part of a bigger plan to bring about the glory of Jesus. Whatever your situation is, I can assure you of this, and I don't, I'm completely, I'm completely sympathetic. I understand how difficult it is for us to believe, particularly the cruddy things in life, are part of God's orchestrated plan to glorify Jesus in our lives. But this is what's happening in Joseph's life. Saying, so, yeah, you're, you're walking into something that's really difficult, but take heart, have hope. You're going to name this guy Jesus. He's going to save the world. Don't shortcut this process. Obedience to the Lord is important, and it says in verse 25 that Joseph gave him the name Jesus. Jesus offers hope for your situation. Jesus' heart is to help you and I work through our brokenheartedness and to provide comfort for us in our morning. Look at the prophet Isaiah from chapter 61 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 3. Jesus actually quoted this passage on his first sermon. He said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives to release from, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. These are, this is the heart of God, that he would help you in whatever situation you are in. He would help you to understand what it is that he is doing. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to get all the answers you need, but he wants to provide a supernatural peace, a hope, something that gives you confidence, something that helps you hang on and believe that he's going to provide for your needs. Thanksgiving was really fun for me. I have uh, three nephews and a niece that live in San Diego. And, uh, and so they all came up to, Cal- uh, to Los Angeles for the holidays. Uh, my sister lives here, so her kids were with her. But my other sister's two sons uh, are in the military. One's in the Coast Guard, and the other one is a Navy SEAL, and they live together in San Diego. And the one who's in the Coast Guard uh, came up to spend Thanksgiving with us. And, and Dr- his name is Trevor. His brother, Drew, is in the middle of Navy SEAL training, and, and part of Navy SEAL training is, is what they call buds. It's this really incredibly painfully difficult time uh, where they have a week they don't sleep and they haul logs around. You've seen movies. You've seen pictures. Here's a picture of them actually. After days and days and days of not sleeping, they actually carry their, their, their boat out into water and they all night long paddle around the bay in San Diego. It's freezing. They haven't slept for days they're starving. Well, my brother, my sister's sons love each other a lot. And the older is Trevor, and he's in the Coast Guard, and he says to the younger, is there anything I can do to help? And they devise a plan. And what happens is, is Trevor goes out and buys 100 burritos, and he puts them in a trash bag, and then he gets on a surfboard in the middle of the night, and he paddles out to where these Navy SEALs are going in their boats to bring him food. Now, he tells him he's going to do this, too. So the whole time, Drew is in his paddle with his... With his and these are the toughest guys on the planet, but they're dying. They're emotional. They're exhausted. 
And they're paddling along, but Drew is saying to himself, Trevor said he's coming with food. <laughs> Trevor said he's coming with food. It so happens that along the way, uh, some of the officers in a boat saw Trevor paddling out on his, on his surfboard and went to him and said, what are you doing out here? Let's see some identification. And when they found out that it was Drew's brother, Trevor, they let him go. They were so taken by, I can't believe somebody would do this. So he paddles out there, and when he sees his brother coming on the, on the surfboard, he's like, Trevor! And they, and they have this moment, and they talk for a little while, and, and he offers him just conversation. You can hang in there. Don't give up. Your, your, your officers have said good things about you. And then he throws him this bag of Gatorades and burritos, and the soon-to-be Navy SEALs go to town. You see, I don't know how you endure. I would make it in buds for about, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. And to go like several days in that kind of torture would be almost impossible unless you had some hope. You had something in your soul anchored to say, this is worth it. This, is, this difficulty is part of a larger plan. Or if you had somebody who would come to you and say, I'm going to meet your needs I'm going to give you a reason to continue on. I'm coming with Taco Bell. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and sure enough, uh, Drew continues on. I, I think about this hope when I, with you, struggle to retain hope in our lives that things are working together for an ultimate good. It may not be not difficult. It may be very challenging. But God has promised us that he is working all things together to glorify Jesus. And Jesus offers hope for our situation. More specifically, let me give you this encouragement today too. Jesus offers himself for your salvation. He offers hope for your situation. But the hope Jesus is talking about ultimately and what all of this passage is about is the divine plan that Jesus would allow you and I to be at rest about our eternal destiny, that we do not have to fear, that it is not up in the air, that it is not something we have to be afraid of any longer. If you're a child of his, hope from a spiritual, salvific standpoint, from your own enjoyment of your relationship with God, hope is, I know I'm going to heaven, and it gives me hope. And if you're not certain you're going to heaven, then friend, you don't have hope. Jesus offers himself for your salvation. Listen to the word beginning in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1. She will give birth, Mary, to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. And then later in the passage, the virgin will be with child and give us birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What Jesus is doing is rescuing us from our sins so that we can enjoy the presence of God, so that we can enjoy him with us. And in spite of what so, uh, many so-called Christian theologians are speculating, understand something, Jesus' primary purpose for coming was to die in our place to pay for our sins. 
Yes, the byproduct of people restored to God is health, is service to the community, is living for Christ and glorifying Him and cultural renewal, but make no mistake about it. The ultimate goal of God is to restore creation and as the focal point of His creation, restore people to relationship with Him. And the only way you can have hope in this sense is to be able to address with clarity the things that would cause you to despair. As the prophet Isaiah said, he wants to give us a spirit of the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. According to Jesus, if we believe in him and what he's done in dying for our sins, we will be saved. And interestingly, we don't do anything in particular to either be saved or condemned. The scripture says we are already condemned by our nature. In simple reliance upon him, we are rescued. You don't believe me? Well, let me read a familiar passage of scripture for you from the words of Jesus. This is some of the people who are attempting or in in theological circles to kind of re re rethink the gospel are, are fond of just reading the words of Jesus. So let me go ahead and quote from Jesus in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, our nature is broken. We are born into a broken world. We are born into a broken world. We are fallen, every single one of us. The scripture says not only are we not imperfect, but by nature we desire to do the exact opposite of what God tells us. And that which we do do that is great is by some miracle evidence of his grace in our life. I'll give you a couple of examples of that. I have never robbed a bank. And I could take that as credit, but let me just, you know, I could say, look at me. I have never robbed a bank. I have never stolen from a cash register in 48 years of life. But guess what? I have never had to. So in some ways, I can't really take credit for something that, you know, God has been gracious and provided me. I've never been impoverished. I've never been in a place where I was going to starve. I've never had to steal. And so I can't really take credit for never stealing you know, people say, I, I feel like I've made some good choices with my life. And I think, well, that's great. Did you make yourself? Did you create yourself with the intellect that you have? Did you choose which family you were going to be born into? There's so many evidences of where God has been exceedingly gracious to us. And so Jesus is saying to us, I have protected you in some ways from the brokenness of this world through my graces, my good graces. I've given them to you, but left to ourselves, we are going to do that which satisfies our needs in spite of what God says about things. This very nature is condemnable itself. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. The righteousness, this righteousness that is offered in Jesus is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received 
by faith. When Jesse Jackson ran for president in 1984, I was pretty fascinated by the experience. My dad was a liberal politician, and so being around my home, um, that was something that uh, was part of our life, was hearing the rhetoric of this amazing civil rights speaker. Now, he, he did it again. He used the same terminology in the year 2000 when he visited the town I was living at the time, Tallahassee, Florida, and he re- had a refrain his speaking where he would say, keep hope alive. Perhaps you've heard the Reverend Jesse Jackson say such a thing. Keep hope alive. You know, it's his whole, and it's, and it's such an amazing speaking style, the call and response preaching methodology of the African-American pastor, and I can't do it because I couldn't be any wider if I tried. But Jesse Jackson's skilled beyond words as an orator, and he, and, and he this refrain just echoes, keep hope alive, keep hope alive. And I really didn't understand it in 1984. I had a little better understanding of it in 2000. But one of the things that's absolutely true is that hope is worthless if you're not hopeless. In other words, you don't understand the need to have hope until you're at a point of despair. The the prophet Isaiah said that we were going to be given a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And you may say to yourself, I don't feel like I'm despairing. Well, that could conceivably be why many don't ever call out for Jesus because they don't really want to see themselves as in a place of danger, a place of judgment, a place where Jesus said, if you don't believe, you're already condemned where you stand. So by not believing, you're just kind of continuing with the natural program that is this world. But by believing, you come to a place where you're able to securely say, I'm going to go to heaven. This is ultimately the question I'd ask for you. Are you desperate for forgiveness? Because if you're not, then the offer of forgiveness isn't going to seem like that great of a deal. And your response to the one who offers it isn't going to be that of praise. You're not going to have put on a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair if you feel like, you know, I'm not that bad. I don't really need forgiveness that badly. I'm an okay person. See, unless you are hopeless, hope is worthless. You have to be able to see yourself as in desperate need of forgiveness. And if you're really in need of forgiveness, if you feel like you're drowning in your sin, or you have a gnawing sense that you'll never be able to live up to God's standards, I've got good news for you. Those things are true according to Scripture, and there is hope. You do not have to be afraid of God's standards any longer. You may say, I'm not that bad, I'm just a little bad. Well, you're not going to appreciate the lifeguard if you don't feel like you're drowning. In other words, if he jumps into the kiddie pool while you're just sitting there in three feet of water, you're not going to go, wow, this was a really great thing. Thanks. I mean, that's just going to be about your attitude. But if you've got the real sense, if you ever have looked in the mirror or woke up one morning, the morning after, and said, man, I am really not a very moral person at all. And you think, I am never, and this is my experience having grown up in church, I am never going to be able to live at the standard of holiness that these religious freaks are talking about. I am never going to be able to stop feeling guilty for the sin in my life. I am never going to be able to do that. It's at that moment of despair where the gospel comes in with hope and says, I've got good news. I've got good news. You don't have to maintain a moral standard in order to know you're going to heaven. 
Jesus has been exchanged for you. Your sins have been dealt with in Christ. His life has been exchanged for yours. If you're willing to say, I am hopeless without Christ, Christ is willing to put his life in your place. I have to ask you the question, are you sure you're going to go to heaven if you die? Because you can't have hope unless you're sure. Because see, the essence of hope is, I have a confidence that this is going to happen for sure. And I am able to endure. Jesus has come. Jesus is saying, I'm on the way to rescue you. I have rescued you. You can endure this difficult challenge. You can endure this difficult situation. Life is, it may have its ups and downs, but one day you will spend eternity with me. There's hope. You say, well, I I don't know how I could know I was going to go to heaven. I'm not very good and I may do a lot of failing. No, friend, you will do a lot of failing. The gospel is that you would be cleansed of your sins completely past, present, and future, that the righteousness of Christ that Paul spoke of in Romans 3, this righteousness is a gift to you. It's his Christmas gift to you. He's saying you can know and be at peace with God because of what Jesus has done. You no longer have to fear. You no longer have to be, you no longer have to be terrified of what will happen one day when you face God. You can have hope. And so are you confident in Jesus? Are you sure that he has rescued you? Because all it takes on your part is a reliance upon him. All it takes is a sense that I need forgiveness and I'm going to, I'm going to simply rest and receive this gift from him. And if you're willing to do that, This is his gift to you, hope. You call out to Jesus, and he says he will come and rescue you. Each week at PRISM, we celebrate communion. And if you've not seen this communion table up here, it has two elements in it. Uh, One is bread, and the other is wine. And these were given by Jesus on the night that he was betrayed and the weekend that he was crucified. He he re instituted uh, or re-coronated, if you will, or recreated a Passover supper for Christian believers. Uh, This was a Jewish festival that happened annually. And Jesus says, you can see what I'm doing for you in this meal. And I want you to celebrate this often, which is why we do it every week. We do it every week because it points to two important things. It points to the fact that Jesus' body was broken and that his blood was spilled. And these two things are what make you and I be able to have hope about our future. The broken body of Jesus is so that you would never have to beat yourself up for the mistakes you make. The spilled blood of Christ is this blood that, as the scriptures say, cleanses you from all of your sins. See, in Christ, you can have hope and know that God, your Father, loves you and that you never have to be afraid of what's coming. You can also, based on the reality of what Jesus has done for you, have hope for the situations you face in life that ultimately it's all about glorifying Jesus. Today, on our first day of Advent, I want to give you an opportunity perhaps to seal the deal, if you will, with God. Maybe for a while you've kind of danced around the edges of saying, I want to follow you, Jesus, but you haven't really determined to do so. 
Perhaps you've thought you had to work really hard and try really hard and then maybe God would love you and God is saying, you don't have to do that. I love you and I'm going to rescue you because of what Jesus has done. You want hope, a confidence that eternity is yours. And if you will rest in that hope, you'll find all the motivation you need to love God. And today, perhaps, is the day where you'll say, Jesus, I'm tired of trying on my own. I'm tired of laboring intensely on my own. And I'm going to rely upon what you're doing to me. Jesus, if you will, metaphorically, is paddling out to you. And the question is whether or not you're going to look to him to receive his gift and whether or not you are going to see yourself as desperately in need of what he has. And today I'll, I'll pray with you and allow you a few minutes of quiet. But if you feel like genuinely Jesus, it's time for you to follow him, then today we invite you to the communion table. You don't have to be a part of a denomination. You don't have to be a member of a church to participate in communion. You just have to be somebody that says, I'm ready for the hope that comes from trusting in Christ alone and nothing else. I'm ready to be confident that all of my times and seasons are in his hands. I'm ready to walk in relationship with him. And by coming to communion today, what you'd be communicating to all of us, gladly, we would celebrate that you have joined our merry band of broken people in need of a Savior. And today you can celebrate the Christmas season in style by calling yourself a child of God. So let's pray together to that end, okay? Father, today I'm hopeful that you're moving in the hearts of my friends first to encourage believers.